Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 80. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Deborah O'Reilly. Deb is a biotechnology teacher at Essex North Shore Agricultural and Technical School in Hawthorne, Massachusetts. Deb has taught a wide variety of science courses throughout her career, including AP and Honors Chemistry, as well as Forensics. Deb is an active member of the biotech teacher community in New England, including the Amgen Biotech Experience, being a lab exchange master teacher, and participating in the New England BioLabs Molecular Biology mm-hmm. Summer Workshop. Deb holds a BS in biochemistry from the University of Massachusetts and an MED from Salem State University. Welcome, Deb. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Pretty good. Nice to nice to talk to you again. Uh, we were together, gosh, I guess it was about a month and a half ago um, in uh, Harvard. That's right. Yeah. Always you were, working hard there. Yeah. Well, you were you were fresh off of that uh, New England Biolabs thing, uh, which I know is a very intense week. Yeah. Very uh, intense, but very, very um, incredible learning experience. Yeah. And so now we're a couple weeks into the school year. Um, I don't know. Did you guys go back in August? We did. We're, uh, we went back third Monday in August. Oh, wow. That's yeah, early. So I've already had uh, two cycles with seniors and two cycles with freshmen. So we've been in school for four weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you guys are you guys are pretty deep into it. We're, we, get, we went back the last week of August. So, yeah, we're about we're we're just about wrapping up our fourth week and by the time this comes out we'll be uh close to you know six weeks in although we have the next couple weeks for us we have jewish holidays off and some professional days and some other breaks like we had three weeks of uninterrupted school but we only have like three of those all year uh with our schedule between they drop in like half professional days or full professional days or holidays or something like that i was working on my schedule throughout and i realized there's only like two three-week stretches that we have before December break and the first one is in September and then the other one is in December and we do not have more than like a week and a half straight without a breakup between now and when we come back from Thanksgiving so oh, that's nice it it is but it's also like no rhythm um, right. to your As classes an academic teacher, I would have hated that yeah, as an academic teacher, it it changes the way you view things, especially when you're like dealing with living things and you're like, huh, how is this lab going to work? Um, right. Uh, yeah. So. All right. Well, we can we're going to get into it. And I'm definitely going to ask you about that summer workshop because I, I definitely want to hear a lot more about that. And um, also just for my own personal reflection, because now you're the second person I know in the last couple of years who's gone to that. And um, and I want to get that. But before I do that, I want to get into the question I like to start with everybody, which is uh, how did you become a science teacher and like what got you into the science classroom? Ah, great question. So I actually thought I wanted to teach for a long time as a young adult and really liked science. So when I went to college, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go in medical school or not. So I actually majored in um, chemistry and minored in biochem in college. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I graduated, I got out at a time when teaching was a very difficult profession to get into. And 
I sent my application out for teaching positions as well as for lab positions and got hired on my first interview as a um, manufacturing technician for Revagen Corporation. Based originally in Cambridge, but now they're down in uh, Needham Heights. They basically make recombinant protein A, which is one of the largest used uh, proteins for antibody binding and purification. So I worked with them for just shy of 10 years, and then I moved over to a small company in the Charlestown Navy Yard called Biotransplant. Mm-hmm. And that company, um, I liked the work better that I was doing for them, but I didn't really uh, feel the company was stable, I guess is the best word. We were working on uh, creating... Um, less immune response pig to human transplantation organ transplantation yeah xeno transplant exactly i was just gonna throw that word out myself um so (laughs) gotta remember the type of nerd you're talking to so (laughs) yeah that's right so i also at that period of my life had started coaching high school volleyball and high school basketball and realized that i really did enjoy working with young adults and thought before i was too far into my biotech career and making way too much money i should um try teaching and i've been teaching ever since so that was uh 98 i think or two 2000 like right around there so how did you go so what was your pathway so you're working at a biotech company and obviously you've got your you, you know, you've got a little bit of an inroads into a school because you're you're coaching there, um, and so they're starting to get to know you. And and th- I think that's like a safer transition if somebody knows that you have experience working with teens. But w- what's your pathway from from biotech into the classroom? Because right around there, we're about what seven, you know, between five and seven years after ed reform in Massachusetts, um, and licensure is much harder then than it would have been, um, you know, earlier. Um, Right. But I was actually pretty smart about it and got my license to teach chemistry right upon graduation of college. So I graduated college uh, in 88 in the spring and then uh, reapplied to finish my student teaching in the fall of 88 to complete my requirements for licensure and then got hired by Replogen in February of 89. Oh, that was smart. That was super smart. So you actually got a teaching license that probably said like lifetime teaching certificate. Yes, it does. It says license for life. <laughs> Follow yeah. So it's funny because I got, I was the first cohort of teachers in Massachusetts that didn't get the lifetime teaching. So my first license I got was in 96, 97. And that was the year they started printing them with the five years on them. And um, the, the veterans in the building were like furious that it was happening. <laughs> right. They all, they all had this piece of paper that said lifetime. So, you know, I've never had that, but I, I do know there's a handful of people who have it. Right. And I actually pretty sure I was, I would have been able to keep my job without ever getting my master's mm-hmm. because I had that grandfathered license Mm -hmm. but obviously i wouldn't have slid on anyone's pay scale Mm. um so i did you know i did obviously go and get my master's in education i didn't have to do it within the five-year span i had pretty much an indefinite amount of time yeah whenever you wanted to go about getting it right right 
So, yeah. yeah. So I, as I said, I had always kind of thought I might want to teach, but I got a lot of pressure from my family to pursue a science educate a science career and not go into teaching. Hmm. Um, but look where I am. All that is that, you know, I taught chemistry uh, for a long time, first at Linfield High School, then at Marblehead High School. And then when I left Marblehead and went to Essex Aggie, I was teaching chemistry and physics. And I didn't know when I took the job at Essex Aggie that we were merging with two other schools. I didn't know it was going to become this great big school. And the reason, one of the main reasons I made the switch was to go back to teaching in a smaller uh, school environment where you knew every single kid and uh, kind of had more of a community feel to it. Cause I, I don't know what size your school is, but the bigger the school, you know, the more small clusters you have and you don't really know everybody and you definitely don't know a lot of kids. Yeah. Well, I, I teach in a school of 2000. So yeah. Um, so you're in the same place I'm at. Yeah. Then there's like, I, I literally th- today turned to somebody and I said, okay, so I have this counselor I need to go see. Is this one of the new counselors or is this a counselor who like got married or got divorced and changed their name? And I, I had to turn to my department because like that, that's the size of school that you have that, you know, um, there are, you know, do- a dozen to, to 20 some odd people in every department, including the counseling department, um, that here we are a few weeks in the school. And it turns out this is one of the new hires, uh, which I thought it was, but you're not like when you teach in a small school and I taught in Winthrop before, which is, you know, a school of 600 and Marblehead's right. not that much yeah. bigger than that. I mean, um, you do like, it's hard to not know every member of the faculty at, in a school like that, but you might not know all the kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, that's one of the few things I miss about teaching an academic subject is, you know, you'd have four to six sections of students. So you would get to know at least, you know, a hundred plus kids, even in this big school. But now that I'm teaching as an occupational teacher in the biotech career shop, I have, I'll have 18 freshmen and I have 13 seniors. So I have 31 kids that, you know, basically, um, and you know, you'll know them as they go through. So you end up maybe knowing 60 or 65 kids in the whole school through your, your shop. So, so you've, you've already pushed me into that, that next question, because you teach in this agriculture and technical school, and you did teach in a more traditional suburban high school, a couple of them. Uh, and, and so I guess there's sort of two questions, because I, when I think of, uh, like, technical schools, I, I don't know much. I mean, it's literally what I know from, like, our friend Scott, um, who teaches, like, you know, I you know, a couple hundred kids because um, he has shop where he has like large numbers of kids who rotate over every once in a while. And I know a couple other teachers, but I have very limited personal experience teaching in that. Um, so yeah. what was the transition like it, when you went over, you said you were first teaching academic subjects and then became more a career education? Yeah, teacher? so I started off at the Aggie and I had um, on blue days, I was teaching chemistry junior to juniors. And on green days, I was teaching physics to seniors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, we had four periods a day, kind mm-hmm. of a block schedule. Yep. So I had three sections each week. Um, so, uh, 
the transition pretty much was easy because I was doing the same thing. I had plenty of time to do labs because it was a block schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd always been a very lab based chemistry teacher. I think chemistry can be really fun when you show the kids that it can be like magic. Um, <laughs> so I'd always taught, uh, with, I used to call them labs and activities to kind of break it up. So certain days we do like a 30 minute activity. And then once every two weeks, we do like a long hour plus lab. So that first year wasn't a bad transition at all. Then when we merged schools, um, I continued to keep, keep that kind of schedule. They added forensics in, um, but I had taught forensics at Marblehead. So that wasn't a big stretch for me either. And then the second year here, the biotech program needed one full-time and one part-time teacher. So I even got to break into being a shop teacher kind of easily because I would teach one week chemistry. And then the second, the the rotation, I would go down and teach biotechnology to freshmen. So I got to ease in really slowly because the freshmen, you'd go through career discovery and then explore. So for the first 16 weeks of school, every other week, you're getting a week of freshmen that are exploring your program. So it's repetitive. So you have eight, eight weeks of that over a 16 week period where freshmen come in and do five days in your shop. So you try to wow them with like <laughs> fun labs or whatever. So even the prep and the planning was pretty easy initially. Then the freshmen don't come into their shop until January, mid-January. So as I said, it was like a nice, easy transition for me to see what biotechnology was like. And then I fell in love with it, obviously, because that's where I am full-time. And with that, I had to get a new license. And that was not fun. <laughs> so that's a, it's a different license to teach biotech than chemistry? Yes. It's a career area license or a vocational license. So to teach in a vocational area, you have to have had work experience in that area, which I did have, but it wasn't new enough. I had to have three years within the last seven, um, which meant I had to work at cell signaling over the summer for four years to get my three years Mm. of uh, time. And then I had to take the vocational education testing. So I had to take the literacy and writing for vocational (laughs) teachers. Um, Wow. Which, you know, that wasn't really a problem at all. And then I had to take a test in in the biotechnology field. That test was a little bit harder, but still not bad. So I passed all the testing first time through. And now I'm waiting on my professional license, which requires me to teach in the field for three years. And then I have to take a certain number of vocational uh, courses at the you know graduate level. But I'm hoping to get some of those waived by using my master's degree because they're the same courses. They just, mm. you know, most vocational teachers don't have a master's degree. Yeah, because they're, they're, they're hiring you for your work experience, not for... Yeah your classroom right. time. Right. So I'm kind of in a weird position as far as being a little bit of an outlier with the licensing process. 
So <laughs> it's an exciting game that's going on behind you. I will tell you. Yeah, that. yeah. Field hockey. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's field hockey. Okay. I was like, I have no, I have no context clues about what the game is behind you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So that's super. That's super interesting. The the transition that you went in. So now you you say your job is predominantly alternating between freshmen and seniors, and you've got sort of smaller numbers. So this is a. Do you still do the, the the program where freshmen are coming in the first half of the year and then they join a shop in the second half? Is that yeah, still? Yeah, so right now freshmen are exploring. Uh, so they come in for career discovery. Their first their first week of school in high school is academic. Mm-hmm. Their second week of school, they spend one 52-minute period in every single one of the shops we have in this high school. Oh, wow. And then during their next academic week, they have to decide which eight shops they want to actually explore. And then they go in and they'll spend a week in a shop. Then they go back to academics and then they'll spend the next week in a different shop until they've done that for the eight exploratory shops. And then they have to choose their top three shops that they want, hoping to get their number one choice. And does it go back and forth to teachers also or the shops pick students as well or is it no we have work? no say it's all <laughs> driven we okay. grade them when they're in exploratory so theoretically their grades help like if there's too many kids that pick a particular shop mm-hmm. the grades help like rate the kid yeah so there's there's, there's cutoffs yeah well, that's so. So very so yeah I, I had talked to Scott about this a, a about a year ago or so and and the way he was describing it um, I mean it sounds like his shop situation is extremely different than yours um, in the sense that he just has a cohort that come in every other week for like long periods of time um, yeah I thought I thought Scott was actually teaching a biotech elective yeah at, it sounds like he's teaching more like a bio course right. Uh, yeah, so he's teaching like an academic in a yes, shop. Yes, he's on the academic week. Yeah. Yeah. So, I've learned I've learned more about tech in the last year, <laughs> or like these these technical schools uh, in the last year from talking to a couple of people. So that's it's very cool. Uh, I feel like I've, as somebody who you know grew up in like you know a, a suburb and went to a sort of a, your traditional high school and then have taught for twenty four years in nothing but sort of a traditional high school, I have a very, you know, caricature version of what a tech school is like. And most of my interaction with people from tech schools are either students who got thrown out of the tech school and came back to us. That was most of my early career experience or from professional experience where I talked to people like you and Scott. Um, right. so, yeah, that's, it's, it, that's been a, a learning curve for me. Um, so like now you, I guess that group that you have as seniors, I would imagine you get to know them like very well. You probably know them from when they were younger and now you spend a lot of time with them. Right. So I had, this is a group of students that I had as freshmen mm-hmm. and I was teaching freshman sophomores and we just switched me up to freshman senior. Uh, so I had this particular group as freshmen and sophomores and now I have them again as seniors. So I do know them pretty well. They've, they've, they've had me for quite a lot of their high school career. Yeah. Um, but this year has been very exciting for us because with the work through Harvard that you also work mm-hmm. uh, through the ABE program and through Lab Exchange, I've gotten uh, two of our students in as interns for Alia over the last two years, and she's agreed to take two again this year. And they go in 
in January ish and work for her through June. Um, wow. And then we did a lot of work over the end of the school year last year in the summer, and we have Pfizer on board. They're going to take four of our students for co op position. Wow. So I just sent a bunch of cover letters and resumes over to Pfizer, and they're going to pick the students that they want to interview from the group of 13. And then hopefully those guys will be starting by the middle, middle of October and they'll be gone as long as they succeed at the position. Wow. So you're like, you're really pushing that like career readiness, you know, even earlier by getting these guys out into to internships and co-ops during their senior year. Right. With our type of school, it's an expectation to get kids out in the workforce, regardless of the type of shop you have. So that's why you want those those low numbers because and I I know I do like a a little mini job shadowing where I get everyone to go out for like a day and job shadow and it's just a massive amount of work to get students there but this is not just a job this is a you're placing these guys and so the amount of uh like capital time to build those connections so that people are willing to try to take these kids in is is huge. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we kind of have the responsibility of continuing to grow these programs. So um, we've been working also with uh, Mass Life Sciences, Mm -hmm. who places high school students in summer internships. um, And they're working with us and with uh, Worcester Tech to try and get some companies on board to do it during the school year for the vocational high school environment. So hopefully keep your fingers crossed. Hopefully that'll happen in January of 2020. Wow. Yeah. And I, I just talked to Amanda Dillingham um, on my last episode. And so, and we were talking about the summer work that she's been doing with mass life science. Yeah. Um, she yeah, doesn't getting... work. She's crazy. <laughs> That's coming from you too. Yeah. She's always <laughs> doing something. Um, yeah, like, yeah. And, you know, she's now in a leadership role. She's like, um, Dave, they both took like a. Yeah. Administrative type administrative position. position. Yeah. I, we talked about that off air, but when we, I recorded with her, it was mid August and it was like, it had, it was not a hundred percent official. So we had talked about the fact that she had taken on like a department leadership role and she's still going to be interacting with students and still working with them on internships. And I think she still has a class, but yeah, she's taking more of a leadership role at her school. So she's hoping to, she's hoping, I guess, to stay with the students more. Yeah. yeah. We, we're trying to get, uh, I've gotten approval. We just have to figure out some dates um, where her biotech students who've chosen the uh, career pathway mm-hmm. um, can come to our yeah. school and we'll do a couple of different labs with them because they can come for the whole day as a field trip. We yeah. can either do a you know a fish protein lab, the one you know the lab that BioRad does for mm-hmm. basically fingerprinting fish proteins. Yeah, that um, takes all day. <laughs> or something else along that line where her kids don't really get to do like an Eliza because they don't have a plate reader, something like oh, that. Yeah. yeah, and I know you talked to um, Dave Mangus about Brockton and yeah. their program down there. So yeah, you guys get all the cool toys. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's funny, we do have a lot of cool toys, but there's a lot of stress on us to learn how to use them without much time during the, you know, academic year or yeah. the whole day to be trained. And 
you know, I'm super pumped we have the sequencer, but that thing is uh, a beast as far as learning how to use it and getting samples ready to use it. And then just data analysis is insane. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not like Sanger sequencing where you get these nice little peaks <laughs> that show yeah. you your A's and your G's. You just get tons of coded data that then has to be like input into other programs and it's crazy yeah i think that's where like i'm wanna i'm wanna find out what you guys get out and then i want to get my students who have like a, the programming background to figure out how to do the data analysis on that type of stuff right because um, that's something that that's a direction i definitely want to move in there but yeah i'm uh i'm in awe of the stuff that you guys try, but I, I can just imagine with <laughs> earlier this year, we were talking, we got, I know this is going to be like the exciting piece of uh, equipment we got is we got a new autoclave, uh, oh. which like an actual autoclave, not a pressure cooker, but <laughs> like, like an actual autoclave in our school. Um, and like, I know that I'm going to be the only teacter who actually reads that manual. Um, yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm going to be the only one who wants to use it. Um, right. But yeah, but to hear you guys talk about your equipment is like, yeah, that it is possible to do those type of things if you if you build out those programs. It's crazy, right? But I was I was just talking, and one of the cool things about working at a school like this is, you know, the first time we did the DNA library prep, we realized that the part of the prep kit requires you to use these magnetic beads for mm -hmm. isolating your DNA, and um, the plate that they recommend is like 500 and something dollars just for one <laughs> magnetic plate. But I have 18 kids, you know, they can't all use one plate at the same time. Yeah. So if you're so, talking to a professor at Endicott, she's like, why don't you have your advanced manufacturing teacher make a, an individual like eight sample tube holders with, and then you just buy magnets and super glue them in. <laughs> And she sent me a 3D printing version of one, and I sent over advanced manufacturing and engineering. In a way, they came with these 3D printed little uh, PCR tube holders. <laughs> like super awesome. Yeah. Plus, so much money, you know, cost us the price of eight rare earth magnets, and um, that was it. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. That's kind of like what when we would go we go to the like some of the companies um, like I go, I bring my kids over to Millipore Sigma on the job shadow, and that's they have like a, a group in house that prints their own stuff. So like if you're doing a project and you need something, you, they don't order it; they just have their manufacturing people make something for them. Um, so you have a similar deal in if you are uh, like thoughtful enough and creative enough, and you can build those networks, you can you can have a lot of that done in house. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 like collaboration naturally occurs because yeah. of it, you know. Yeah. Um, the other thing we were doing is um, with the uh, health tech teachers, we bring their students down, and we use cheek cells and saliva to do blood typing, mm -hmm. which oh. they wouldn't normally be able to do up there. But so, just so they can understand what blood types are and how they can be different and all of that so it's just fun it's a little bit more flexibility than a traditional academic classroom because you do have so much time mm -hmm. it's just you know like I wanted to do something outside because it was super nice out so we did 
mini PCR that actually you should look into this lab, Aaron. It's a low lab and you go out and you get uh, greenery and you grind the leaves up and extract the chlorophyll and then you run your extracted chlorophyll onto, we just did paper chromatography Mm -hmm. and then they cut, you know, you get, if you do it right and well, you get three colors. Yeah. You get the carotenoids out. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically orange, green, and yellow. Yeah. And you cut the filter paper and stick the little pieces of each color into, um, I was going to say you use those little, um, the P51 boxes. Yeah. And then you, so you put the little bit of isopropanol and you extract the color off the paper and put it in the P51 boxes. And you can see that so chlorophyll B glows in the dark. Is that the one? Yeah. I would have to look it up, but it's definitely one of them. I, I think I have a write-up of that. I, I thought about doing that this year, um, but we have a new schedule and I wasn't sure how my timing was going to run. Um, and I was like, I was afraid of doing it and getting super excited and then like losing the time to actually do the lab that <laughs> I'm supposed to do as my, as my official AP photosynthesis lab. So right. yeah, I'm going to put, I'll put that in my show notes um, and also look out because I think that they they do have a write-up. They um, do. Their write-up's pretty good. I would recommend a couple of changes. So if you do it, let me know. I certainly will. Yeah. And, and then the yeah. other thing I just did was, um, I wanted to do with my freshman explorer, I wanted to do some more stuff with DNA. It's hard though, because you have so many kids cycling through. So Mm -hmm. I kind of modified their DNA glow lab and uh, had them isolate their cheek cell DNA using the whole Gatorade and dish soap method, Uh but scaled it down. And then they take their little you know, mucousy DNA and put it in a PCR tube with a microliter of uh, gel green and some water. And they can see that it is in fact DNA because it glows in the dark with the gel green. Okay. Using the, yeah, using the gel green will make, it's sort of almost like a, like a, you know, those tests that you can run for like glucose and, you know, protein and stuff like that, except for this is using gel green as the identifier for your DNA. Right. So it it worked out well, the freshmen. So what they did is uh, they got a positive control from me that would glow in the dark. And then I had them like test their water, the Gatorade, uh, with and without gel green so we could show that those things were not glowing in the dark. And then they put DNA into the P51 without gel green and then with gel green and they saw great results. And it was a quick and dirty way for kids to see, oh my God, I did get my DNA. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. So yeah, it's got nice controls to it the way you describe it. I like that. Yeah. Like I, and I explained it all. We want to make sure that it's just the DNA uh, that is, glowing not something else so you talk a little bit because you know every freshman learns about ags and c's and t's and hydrogen bonding so you can explain a little bit about that and then tell them that gel green likes to bond with those hydrogen bonds in there mm-hmm. and um yeah it worked out nice I, it was the first time i tried it gel greens binds to the hydrogen bonds and not the phosphates uh no it does bond it bonds Oh, exactly right. It might be the phosphates. You you've now made it, so I have to look this up now. Um. Yeah, <laughs> you might be right. Actually, I might have just confused that. 
Yeah, I because I, I I always and I was this is me making assumptions there. Like when we talk about you know the dyes, like the old school blue dyes. The reason the old school blue dyes work is because they bind to that hyper negative phosphate on the DNA. Um, and I assumed that the gel greens and the cyber greens and all that stuff worked the same way. Um, um, I don't think they do actually. Oh, that's cool. All right, I'm going to add more things to my show notes, how gel yeah, green actually I, works. I might be wrong, but I think that they do actually interact with the DNA differently, and that's why um, they are different sensitivities. But I might be... Oh, uh, that would make sense. I might be lying to you. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's, you know, it's this is the epitome of, like, the black box. You, ca- I mean, the, between the two of us, how many different, like, protocols and, like, experiments do we run? And, like, we know so much about what we do. And we can still come to, like, this super simple question that is deep at the heart of the fundamental answers of this. Like, I, I find this, this is, like, one of those cool things I like about doing this, like, podcast is... I, it turns over the wheels in my head and I realize that all the things I don't know and all the things that I still need to learn. Um, so I'm, I'm actually looking forward to looking up this. So uh, for those interested, check out the show notes because there'll be a link on how gel green works. Okay. Okay. Um, I actually want to go back and talk a little bit about, you know, you briefly mentioned you're like DNA sequencer and I don't think I can let that go because you teach at a school and you've got a DNA sequencer. So like, how do you, how did you get a DNA sequencer? It, so when they built the school, they hired or had someone to like guide them as far as what they would need for a successful biotechnology lab. Mm-hmm. And the person that they had was um, someone from Illumina. Oh. It was a salesman from Illumina. <laughs> so he talked them into thinking we needed a sequencer. And the one, the original sequencer we had was the MySeq, which we couldn't even, as a high school, come close to touching mm. the, the um, maintenance contract. To, to set the machine up was going to cost us $20,000. <laughs> so we never unpacked the machine. So it sat for three and a half years on the counter, untouched. Wow. And then we finally got Illumina. We got a new sales rep who's been awesome. She came in and talked to us about it. And then we got this arrangement where they took the MySeq back and gave us the iSeq and a bunch of kits to run with. So we haven't really had to put any money out yet. Um, after next year, we're going to have to start spending some money. Mm-hmm. So we have to budget That's about six to $10,000 to keep that machine running. Wow. Yeah. It's expensive. <laughs> It is, but I think you guys probably could. Yeah, I'm curious to see if anybody there is creative enough to come up with, like, I mean, you will have the ability to take in and run people's sequences at that point, and maybe you can offset some of those costs. Uh, right, and that's one of the things. I'm I'm actually um, meeting tomorrow with Anne Rankin from... Uh, Phillips Exeter, who was at the New England Biolab summer thing. And we're trying to see if we can figure out a joint project that would be more whole genome-ish sequencing, which is really what the iSeq should be used for, because currently I'm only using it for small PCR products. Yeah. And that really should be what I use Sanger sequencing for. So it's almost more cost effective to send those samples out to be sequenced. 
Um, yeah, I mean, if six to ten thousand dollars, I mean, it, you can do like what three to six bucks a sequence. Um, <laughs> you'd have to run a lot of sequences to justify the cost of maintaining that alumina um, if you're going to run right. small sequences. Right. Yeah. But we'll figure it out. I mean, that's that's why I was saying too. It's it's wonderful to have, but there's a lot of pressure on it. Mm on myself and my colleague to really know what we're doing to learn equipment that, you know, wasn't around when I was in college. <laughs> I, I hear you. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll have to come up. I've, uh, you'll get me turning. I'll start think coming up some projects because I'm sure if uh, there's anybody who can come up with a, like a crazy stupid project for high school students shouldn't even bother to try that involves whole sequencing. I could definitely come up with that. So um, awesome. <laughs> uh, now that I, now that I have that in my head, I'll keep, I'll keep turning that. Um, as I said, I think that even the data analysis alone is an interesting challenge for high school students. Like, what do you do with all this data once it comes out? Um, and I think that, especially for, you know, advanced kids, you know, juniors and seniors, kids who are ready for like a research type project, that's a reasonable question to ask my my top end kids. Um, right. And so, yeah, I'm not going to throw my freshmen into that, but um, yeah, it's, it's just super cool. Well, and that, again, like one of the bonuses of being here yeah. is uh, I our kids have to do something called related which is a course, an academic course that relates to their shop. So during their senior year, their fifth course has to be a related course. And I got through to our administration and suggested that the related course for biotech be uh, computer science. Awesome. So yeah, so they're taking Python programming now with the computer science teacher and he came down and we sat down together and did a bunch of um, suggested projects. Like, and one of them is, okay, I have 52 reads off of this machine. Are they all identical? Are they misplacing a letter? Like, what's going on? And he was like, that's really easy programming to do. And so that's going to be one of the projects that they'll do. All right. I may have to, I may have to come and steal that one. Um... <laughs> or at least or at least steal the base program for that because that's like right up that's sort of along the lines of i wanted my um we get we get the data back from our uh, ptc tasting lab and we get all those sequences and i've always wondered how comparable the regions of the sequences are that are not the snip that we're looking at like how much variability is right. in the rest of it and so later in the year when I do like my computer programming project, I thought it would be super cool if I had them had some TMC, if they could figure out a way of doing that and maybe having like a sample program that shows an example of how that might be done so that they can, you know, as all good computer programmers do, they steal the code from something that's similar and then they just tweak it. Um, but I think that would, that would be, that'd be a lot of fun to use their own DNA sequences and do for comparison. So um, it definitely would be. Yeah. All right. I do want to ask you about uh, the PD you did last summer, um, that New England Biolabs Molecular Biology Summer Workshop. I, I was super interested in that. Um, it is two weeks. Um, I said a week earlier in the recording. And I, as I said, I was like, oh, wait, no, that's actually two weeks. And you have like three hours off on Sunday or something like that. But everybody's so exhausted <laughs> on Sunday that nobody goes home. Um, so so in terms of like the positives, like what what was it like to go and do this workshop? So what kind of things did you do? And and sort of what were your big take homes from from going and spending two weeks with uh, New England Biolabs teaching you molecular biology? Um, there were a couple 
cool things. One, there's all types of people at this conference. So not everyone's a scientist, not everyone's a teacher. Um, there are sales reps. There were retired professors that just wanted to be able to keep up with the new and the improved methods of doing things. Um, there were people from Nepal, from uh, Portugal, from Brazil, from China. Uh, so like where, where can a high school teacher go and be with that group of people like that? Yeah. Right. So just in, in that forum alone that you got to meet so many interesting, intelligent driven people was super fun and all ages, you know, from early twenties in, uh, graduate school up to, as I said, retired, Mm. Uh, retired from education or being a professor or from one guy was a retired lawyer. (laughs) Um, So that kind of thing was cool. And then, you know, it's, it, what's hard about teaching in biotechnology is like, even though I worked in industry, I was basically in the protein chemistry side of things, a purification side of things. So I didn't do a lot with DNA. I did a lot with proteins. And now I'm in a kind of a place where we do a lot more with DNA because that's really the big push, mm. right? Um, DNA to RNA to protein. So I like the fact that this gave me an opportunity to really get a refresher. But we did things like RNA interference. I'd never even touched that before. So it was super cool for me to see how that worked. We transformed using the method of protein fusion. So... Uh, that was kind of cool. Do you know what that is? I've, I've heard of it, but I don't think I've ever seen the lab for it. I think I've read about it. If you have a difficult protein, so you're doing a transformation to get a protein product, mm-hmm. right? And if that protein is difficult as far as like maybe purifying it out or its stability, you uh, fuse it to a tag or something else that will help with the purification. So one method is you add a tag so that you can use a a copper column Mm -hmm. purification and then your protein will bind to the copper column and then uh, be cleaned up. And then in the end, you just cleave that tag. So you basically are like, if it's a protein that doesn't have any sort of chemical properties that would allow you to use sort of the easy column, like purification steps, you would, I guess you'd engineer the protein to have this extra thing or you'd engineer the plasmid that would have an extra piece on it? Yeah, you en- you engineer the plasmid so that when you insert, you're, you're fusing the, the part together. So that was kind of cool. I had never worked with C. elegans before. Uh, and did you we, use those for the RNAi? Yeah. Yeah. And then we did, we CRISPRed. Oh, that, yeah, I remember you telling me about that. Which I've always wanted to try, but, you know, just when do you have the time? So what did you use? What did you do CRISPR on? Yeast. Oh, cool. And we, what did we do to the yeast? All I remember is that we got one colony and it was one blue colony. So we didn't get great results per se because we didn't have a lot of colonies. And then 
our transformation efficiency was 100% because we had one colony and it was transformed. <laughs> we got really lucky. Yeah, I guess like there's lies and damn lies and then there's statistics for you that you <laughs> right? hey, look 100%. <laughs> right. Um, and then what's the other thing? Oh, so we did um, a forensics lab where we used SNTR analysis. Oh, yeah. And then that was run on a, a machine that uses like capillary analysis and is super sensitive so it can pick out so you, you're basically throwing in 10 primers into your dna and pcring those 10 primers mm -hmm. for certain sntrs and then basically whatever ones you come out with will tell you like if you committed the crime if there's you know crime scene dna which they kind of set it up like there was a little crime scenario yeah so it's similar to like the old like snip labs or the repeat yeah. labs yeah. where you're looking for the number of, of repeats because you're just throwing 10 primers into a, a tube with <laughs> your dna right yeah. so it's like competitive pcr but you still get enough of every uh sntr segment to to get an analysis because the machine you're using is so sensitive wow but it's a it's so it's a deep to a deep like biotech dive. It's funny for me when I listen to you talk about this because when when we do the stuff at Harvard during the summer, like you're the person who's like, I'm just a chemistry teacher. I don't know this biology stuff. Like I, the number of times in the last two years I've heard you say, I'm just a chemistry teacher, or like my background is just chemistry, is so many times. Like that's one of the the snips I think in my head of you talking. So for you to be in this intense bio lab that you know dealing with yeast and C. elegans, which is like totally my form um it, it's you know it sounds fun it sounds like you had so much opportunities to learn things that you have a lot of really great technical expertise but probably a little bit of discomfort in that like living things kind of world oh and let me tell you there was a lot of teasing about exactly how uncomfortable i was with those <laughs> moving worms in the microscope um i was thankful i had a lab partner that absolutely loved c elegans they were cute. just squirming everywhere. I was like, oh my God. This is why I was a chemist. I don't like bugs. I don't like things that stink and I don't like squirmy, creepy, crawly things. Uh, yeah. You would have not liked the uh, microbiology lab that I did then this summer. Right. So there's certain things I don't want to do because of that. Like, I have a couple of um, people that have keep trying to talk me into doing fruit fly stuff. And I'm like, yeah. well, ticks are dead when we get them. I'll work with those. We'll <laughs> stick with the tick lab. Well, if you want your easing into the the fruit fly lab, I would recommend there you can get vestigial winged fruit flies that that don't fly, they hop. Yeah. And so, like, um, obviously their genetics is very different, but what they they you can get purebred vestigial winged flies. And then you get other things to go across in them. So what uh, we use fruit flies for like our behavior labs and a lot of our other labs we use. Um, I do a, uh, a fruit fly microbiome lab where I try to shift the microbiome or I challenge my students to shift the microbiomes of the fruit flies after raising them on different types of food stocks that they design. Um, and we do that and I do all of those with uh, vestigial wing flies so that they're if they get out of the vials they're just like hopping around on the counter <laughs> you can just use a paintbrush to knock them back into the vial they're they're oh. very easy to, they're very easy to handle 
So. I might have to try that. Yeah. So if you're gonna if you're gonna take a foray in, there are one there are flies that don't fly and they just hop. Um, and then the, I also have the nice excuse that when any anytime there's fruit flies somewhere in the school and they're like, oh, those AP Bio people, I'm like, did they fly? And they're like, yep. And I was like, not mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I can never be accused of the infestations that happen in the other parts of the building. It just seems like a, a lot of work. They're actually, they're really not. They're super simple. Um, and, and I do like them. I, and I did do a summer in a fruit fly lab a couple of years ago uh, when I worked this, this system out. And so I, I got pretty good at working with them um, and sort of the way you were talking about earlier, the difference between what's like to be an academic st- setting or an industry setting versus a high school setting. Like the tools that I get to use in the high school are nowhere near as good as what I would get to work if I was in a university lab or industry so if you have the ability to build out a little bit you know you could probably get sword co2 and co2 guns and stuff like that and it would make it super easy for you to to build a setup that would allow you to use them yeah we, well we have co2 tanks already because we do uh tish, you know we do the choke tissue culture well. yeah. um yeah. i'm sure it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to add in some other stuff you know I've, I've always thought and this would kind of super cool if we could figure it all out that it would be cool if we could take the gfp lab and do it mm-hmm. with zebrafish oh yeah like scott's zebrafish stuff yeah yeah i would love it if that worked out um i am um i am all on board trying to do some of his zebrafish stuff and i know that you can buy um or get from university stocks um already infused gfp infused uh zebrafish really so you can get those there are i mean there are universities that do that so for you i bet you if somebody can do that on the university level you guys probably have all the technology to do that in your setting so what we need to do is get you down to scott's uh professor who sets him up with all of his stuff right and take you through it. Like, I'm just too much of a chicken to try it on my own. <laughs> and so you need a couple of nuts, like yeah. Scott and maybe me. Um, <laughs> and then the prag- like somebody who's like a pragmatist, like Dave Mangus, to come in. Right. Um, we should pull our own two-week, like, mini yeah. NEB exploratory session. And, like, all go down to Scott's and we'll do zebrafish. And then we can all go up to me and try the sequencer. And then we'll all go somewhere else. And we'll yeah. just have, like, a, two weeks of you know, fiddling around to learn new things. Yeah. And as Don Pinkerton says, it's the same like 10 of us who go to all the workshops anyway. Right. So, so, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll just have to agree upon it in advance. And we'll just have, uh, you know, figure out for a way for, you know, uh, Harvard to pay for it all. So that would be the, uh, <laughs> that'll be the perfect summer. <laughs> all right. Well, we're getting, we're getting close to the, uh, close to the, end here so i want to ask you what are you looking forward to you've, you've talked about a bunch of exciting things but are, is there anything specifically that you're looking forward to in your classroom either in the upcoming year or the upcoming next few years um for sure uh, my ultimate goal is to have a regular uh some kind of genomic sequencing lab to do with my seniors uh the beginning of the school year before they go out on co-op so they can look at um, the process of uh, purifying DNA and quantitating it and getting it ready to be run so that they can do a nice library prep and then have some kind of big project that would be ongoing that we would be continuing to test year after year. So they get the 
um, experience of long-term research or multiple years of data, kind of like what we do with the tick uh, labs where we we're continuing to collect data every year on what percentage of ticks have limes mm. or borealis bacteria in them. And then you could maybe do a triple E now based off of what's happened here in Massachusetts this summer. Oh, true. Yeah. That's been a bit a big one. I know that they haven't been finding many animals right now. The triple E numbers are almost at zero in most communities, but uh, the projections are not that that is that it's not going to stay that way. Really? Yeah. I wonder if, if like there would be a way to get the mosquitoes, dead mosquitoes from like the health department that we could test. Well, they definitely are collecting. I mean, they're the, I, I've been reading the data um, because people have been freaking out and they ask me questions uh, <laughs> about, about triple E. Um, and so I've been reading about the, the virus and that sort of stuff. And so clearly communities are, are, have traps that are collecting mosquitoes and they are testing them because I know that, um, at least in the alert that came out in like the second week of September in my town, we were considered a moderate risk for triple E. But at that time there was zero mosquitoes that they had tested positive, which means they're collecting mosquitoes and they're testing them. And then I think the following week they had their first mosquito that tested positive for triple E. So there is definitely surveillance going on where they're collecting these. So the question is who is collecting and how are they testing? Are, is this just simply an ELISA test? Are they doing a DNA test? What is, what is the standard with which they're testing? Right. And, um, you know, I, my guess is that they have some standard, um, that they're using because this does seem to be a mass department of health, you know, uh, initiative, particularly this, this past summer where they're looking for this data much more rigor rigorously. Hmm. So. Maybe I'll reach out again. That's one of those things that once the school year starts, it gets so crazy busy. Yeah, if you don't have it. And then the other thing is, I don't know if um, in your communities like that you're, that feed into your school, like we have a person in our, in, in Acton who is like the head of the conservation department. Um, and he's like awesome for things like this. Like I can go and ask him and if he doesn't know, like he knows the people who will know. So if you, I don't know if you have a conservation commission in any of the towns uh, that contribute to your school, but I think I would, I'd reach out to them because they probably have a sense. Yeah, I, I definitely will. Um, and then the other big thing I'm excited about, obviously now that some of the kids are going out on co-op, is I want to format our senior year students um, to start a research project of their choice um, in January. So when the last set of students would go out on an internship, then the rest of the remaining students would pick something to work on and actually design their experiment, get their stuff ordered, and kind of monitor them as they come in and work on a particular project um, until end of April, beginning of May, and then create a research poster for it for their portfolio presentation that they have to do for graduation as a graduation requirement. So more realistic. And it doesn't have to be mm. crazy. It can be like you know, last year, uh, one of my students worked with Alia and just checked to see if you can add um, your primers to tack polymerase before you need it. Because often it says don't add until 30 minutes before use. And Zach was able to show that you can actually add it, freeze it, and there's no loss in function. 
Um, I love hearing that. <laughs> something that would make it easier for teachers to know if we could prep it on Friday afternoon, leave it in the freezer and come in on Monday and it's ready to go. Oh. Yeah, I, I actually had um, I had an issue with, with one of my PCR preps for something else I was working in, and the graduate student who was out at Berkeley was telling me like, oh, well, just make sure that you add it all right before you run the primers. And, you know, I teach multiple classes over multiple days. And the, the idea that I was going to add the primers like separately, one microliter of primer to every single tube for every single group all day long, it just, you know, in four, last year was 45 minute classes. It just wasn't going to happen. Right. Um, as opposed to making a master mix up that had the primers in it in advance. So, um, I, that's that's great data to have stuff like that. Yeah, and I could come up with about fifty questions. Sorry, I thought uh, it was they could... good for them to pick something and do something similar like that that would make it easier for us in the long run to be able to do. That's awesome. Yep. All right. Well, before we get to picks, and if you have any questions for me, uh, what do you do when you're not teaching? I mean, because you you have a crazy life and you're always teaching and or coaching. Uh, but what do you like to do when you're when you're not you know with your with your students? Well, uh, I just recently uh, got back to crocheting. I know that's kind of funny, but uh, I saw you doing this. Yeah, and it's I find it very relaxing. And what's nice about it is I can listen to a book on tape while I'm crocheting. So I can't necessarily read. Excuse me, but I can still be learning and doing something creative at the same time so for me it's been kind of fun getting back into that i i like to uh be physically active so i play golf my volleyball league starts up uh tomorrow mm. and then um i will ski in the winter i like to visit microbreweries all over the place <laughs> um i know you have a passion for that I don't know what you're talking about. I have not been, drink- I have not been drinking a beer or two throughout this whole process, but I'm not at school. So, uh. <laughs> yeah. So things like that. I don't have a ton of free time once the school year starts, but yeah. And I like to learn, like for me, this process of changing from being a chemistry teacher, like, I think I was starting to feel very stagnant. It's not like chemistry changes over time. <laughs> yeah. Um, Whereas this is crazy, like how quickly this field is changing. And I feel like you really do have to be doing something every summer in order to make sure you know what's new and possible and to keep your kids up to date um, with what's going on in the world. You, you really have to be constantly looking at stuff. Yeah. And it, it can be a lot of, uh, that's the fun part. Like, right. oh, look at this cool, look at this cool thing. Yeah. yeah. Super cool. All right. Well, before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Um. So, do you do you find that it's it gets harder and harder to find interesting topics to uh, proceed with on on your you know show, or is it one show will lead you into fifteen other ideas and you just keep on going? Well, so yeah, I mean, the hardest thing I get, and and you are a good example of this, is that I know like a lot of really cool teachers, but pinning them down (laughs) to record is a a hard, is a challenge. So, um, you know, we're at episode 80 here. 
Uh, and and there's definitely a couple of people. I, I will leave them nameless. There's a couple of people who I'd love to record with, um, and I have ideas to record with. Um, but my my podcast is really driven by that. Like, who are people I want to sit down and like, you know, we have. I mean, two of us have had half a dozen conversations this past summer and the previous summer when we worked together, but nothing was this long. I mean, this is the longest conversation the two of us have had, just the two of us. Right. Um, and, and the things that I picked out from you that, that now have changed the way I think about some of the things that you do and some of the challenges you do, and then some of the commonalities we have is unique. So no, I don't have a, I don't have a lack of curiosity about what my colleagues are. It's just, <laughs> it does get hard this time of year uh, to, to pin people down and get them to record. Um, and so, uh, I, I can see myself doing this at least through the end of this school year. Um, and I do have ideas for other podcasts and, and other formats to try out. Um, but I would definitely like to keep going. I would love to see an episode 100. I guess that's sort of my, my goal at this point. I'm a, I'm kind of a goal oriented person and that would be sometime next summer. So I'd love to get to the life of the school 100. So, um, but yeah, I have in my mind the next, like seven or eight episodes that I would want to run, um, whether or not I can get people to line up for those and get the interviews run out. And uh, it does not, it's not hard to come up with the questions and, and ask people about the stuff that they do um, once we get going. So um, oh. yeah, there's a couple of people in our group that I can't get on the show. <laughs> now, are you coming to the ABE uh, recognition dinner? I am. Oh, good. So. I will definitely be pinning some people down and maybe we'll, we'll uh, like last year get um, <laughs> last year. I think we had Mary drive us in uh, down into Harvard square afterwards um, right. <laughs> to go, to go out. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure the Red Sox won't be in the world series this year, No, um, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but last year that was a lot of fun. We went in and, uh, and hung out and watched the Red Sox on the, uh, on the TVs in, in Harvard square uh, and hung out for an extra couple hours after the fact. So that, that's always a fun time. Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, let's get to picks of the episode. Um, so, Deb, you have something that's forensics related. What is your pick of the episode? My pick of the episode is I was just um, reading a, an article that me, led me to this article about how they've just developed a new technique in which they no longer need the the root or the bulb of your hair to get DNA mm. analysis from it. Yeah. So then I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. But then this article was attached to it. And I thought, that's pretty cool that you can use DNA to start to predict eye hair and skin color so that you can help profile the you know, person whose DNA you've recovered from a crime scene. Yeah. I'm curious about the – I'll definitely put that link in. I'm curious about how the um... – what their error bars are. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, curious, I'm curious how good their blind testing is. Yeah. Um, it's not a very thorough article that's, that I found, but um, I think it's just a new process. that's just coming out. So um, yeah, it's one of those things where we're going to have to watch to see how it works. Yeah. And if I can find, if there is a, an article that it came from that's open source enough that I can post it, I'll say I'll post in something beyond that. But I think this has been coming for a while. Pretty, pretty, user i think it's usually pretty open source yeah the the science daily is going to be great i'm just curious about like the original journal article oh, like right, right, right. if it was in if it was like behind a paywall um because this is from the researchers are from purdue um so the question is do they have does the original journal article which they usually reference 
um in the in the source like did they have it they have in this case the um original source is from forensic science international genetics which is probably behind a paywall um because <laughs> yeah. most most things are uh, but if it's not um oh it looks like well we can get the ab abstract so I, i'll definitely link back to the um the at least the abstract of it but yeah it's uh to get the full articles behind a paywall so uh, well, cool. i'll put that in the show notes so all right well mine is in a totally different direction um uh earlier this week i was like literally i was like coming up the stairs and my wife was like what's wrong and i was like um nothing i just was listening to something that was like so powerful um kirsten milks is a, a biology teacher uh that i know from indiana i had her on the podcast um about a year ago and um and she just released this audio story um that was posted that says i know i am uh from not knowing when her car will come through the snow um it's a, a about a 15 minute um audio track of her talking about um her as a teenager and the unstable house that she grew up grew up in and the and and she talked a little bit on the show with me and and has revealed a little bit more through some of her writing and some other things um, that she grew up in a house where she did not have food security that there were issues of of mental illness there were she grew up in an unstable home um, and the anxiety and and the all of the factors that went into that and sort of how that's informed her work now working with students um, and how it has forged her her really her empathy for working with her students and how students open up to her um but it's from this experience and if you met kirsten i mean she's got a phd from her from stanford like this is oh. not somebody who you would think of like oh like grew up on like rough times and i think it's the the way students in a lot of cases the students who have things to hide will really hide you know things that they're struggling with from from people because they want people to be aware of like the what they want you to see and they will hide the things that they struggle with um I, I found it to be an incredibly powerful story it made me think of flashes to individual conversations i've had with my students um students who i know are struggling with things outside of school um and some of the, like the little bits of humanity that I've picked up that, you know, honestly, as a 20 something teacher, I probably didn't have that degree of empathy. I, I didn't have that degree of warmth, but now having had so many kids I've interacted with over time, um, you start to pick on my cues and signs and, and that sort of stuff over time. And, um, uh, for me, it was again, uh, a moment of learning, uh, of something that's probably the most important thing that we have to learn, which is, um, our students are people and they have lived complex lives and you will never know the full truth behind it, but, um, you may need to think about the motivations behind why they behave the way they do and, and maybe some of the humanity behind them. Right. So it was uh, super powerful. So I, I just wanted to share that because, as I said, I like literally was walking up the stairs like like misting up. And, you know, I'm a I'm a pretty emotive guy, but I'm not a, I'm not an easy to tear guy. Yeah. Um, but like it like it hit me and it, it was those stories of my own students that I've had. Um, I was I like specifically was focusing on a, a kid who I had coached. Gosh, it must have been about 15 years ago um, who was like missing a lot of school. It was like a pretty good athlete. Um, and I remember having a conversation with her and just saying like students who miss a lot of school are not happy during their school day. Like, like, you know, you can get sick sometimes, but this is a kid who is missing like one to two days a week, like during season. Um, 
and it was out of character for her. And I knew this kid from before. And I basically called her out in a way to say, like, you know, th- when I see this, it means something's not quite right. And we had a, a little bit more of a heart to heart. And it turned out, yeah, there was stuff going on in her life outside of school that was making life really hard. Um, right. And and it was not something that I really picked up on overtly at the time. It was probably one of the first times I ever had a student who I picked something up that wasn't right there on the surface from their behavior. And I was able to have that. And I thought back to that moment of connecting with a kid beyond just the classroom or the the field or, or that sort of stuff and, and helping be sort of a rock for them in the building that they wanted to come to school so that they could have some stability every day. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, Kids can go two ways with that. Mm-hmm. Either, you know, they become kind of that type A personality kid that comes to school, exceeds at everything they do, and drowns themselves at how much work they take on so they don't have to deal with what's going on outside of school. Or they don't get out of bed because they can't even think about yeah. what's going on. Well, and we all, I think, I mean, we all have strengths and weaknesses and we all have things that we avoid and, um, but it's, as adults, we have a much better toolbox to deal with those things and to be be 14, 15, 16 year olds and to deal with these is something that we see in front of us all the time. And, um, you know, when I hear, when I hear people like frustrated with the behavior of teenagers, I I sometimes am like, they're teenagers, they're kind of supposed to be idiots, like. <laughs> like when they when they have it all together, those are the kids. I'm like, wow, they have it all together. <laughs> like, uh, and uh, and uh, we're just helping them not make stu- really big stupid mistakes um, <laughs> and, and struggle through to become sort of functioning adults. So, all right, well, Deb, thank you so much for joining me. I know, like, <laughs> uh, this is going to be a, hope this is going to be an interesting editing podcast as I edit out the uh, cheering noises from behind you from the field hockey game. No, it's great. It's like the, it's, it very rarely do I have somebody who's so openly about their background noise and you, so if anybody hears any weird noises or there's some odd cuts to this, it's because I literally edited out the cheering from a field hockey game because Deb joined me from school in <laughs> on a Monday. Uh, so I super appreciate you joining me um, on this night and I think it was an awesome recording. So, um, so thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing you soon, bud. Yeah. All right. Let me give my credits for the show. Uh, so please subscribe to Life of the School on any podcast player you have, including Spotify. Got it on Spotify this summer, but Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, anyplace else. Uh, Patreon, if you're interested in supporting what I do, you can go to patreon.com slash lots. Patreon's got an early release of my episodes. Um, I also post my show notes there along with on lifeoftheschool.org. Music on this every and every, this and every episode are provided by ex-magicians and Jake Jenkins. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Deb, I could not find you on Twitter. Uh, I don't really tweet. All right. But I will tweet this out and uh, you can follow me on Twitter. And so thank you all. And I will talk to everybody soon. Great.